Welcome to Dollars and Cents with a couple of gents Making money moves with the finest of gents Come and pull up a seat cause we're proud to present How to make some good decisions when you're on the fence Rob and Steve gonna tell you how to do it the best Hello and welcome to another episode of Dollars and Cents with a couple of gents He is Robert Wilson He is Stephen Ellis See, this time we didn't introduce ourselves. It's true. Right? We said we weren't going to do that anymore. That is true. We did say that. <laughs> but I can say we the gents. Yeah, we the gents. I know we have a few new listeners. We kind of track our, our numbers and see that we've had a, a bit of an influx of new listeners. So we wanted to make sure we introduced ourselves for those people. Or right. introduced each other for those people, I should say. Now, Steve, I don't know if our increase in listenership is because of us or because of Spencer Tonkinson, our last guest. I think it was us. Definitely us. Yeah, I don't even think that's a question, Rob. That's true. No no disrespect to Spencer. He's a great guy, but he stays up too late. That's all I know. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, uh, great topic for our 18th episode. A bit of a follow-up to, to an episode we did back in April, which was the history of modern stock exchanges. Uh, this one kind of comes about, uh, we had some feedback from a listener who wanted to talk about investing in mutual funds versus investing in individual equities. And so, you know, I think that's a great topic for discussion. But before we delve into that, we wanted to do an episode on the anatomy of a mutual fund. Yeah, that's right, Steve. We do get lots of questions about what exactly is a mutual fund and how that differs from buying a stock individually. So whether you're buying domestically here in Canada, into the U.S., or even globally, there's many different ways that we can do that. And so we decided it'd be a great opportunity to really break it down and explain for our listeners what exactly a mutual fund is. Yeah, Rob, and, and we even still hear people refer to mutual funds as an account, as you would an RSP or a RIF or a TFSA, for example, where that's not actually the case. The mutual fund is the investment, uh, not the, the account structure itself. So I guess that can go down as the first point uh, in That's our right. uh, our list of, of items uh, in terms of the anatomy of a mutual fund. So Rob, let's just start with a brief history of mutual funds because I think you know we don't want to repeat too much of what we discussed in our, our previous episode about the, the capital markets and there is some overlap in terms of the history there. So let's just talk about a couple of items that are specific to mutual funds themselves. So it is thought that the, the first mutual fund was actually created by a Dutch merchant, Adrian van Ketwich. What Adrian essentially did was pool money together from a, a number of subscribers and formed an investment trust. Uh, that was in 1774, and that's considered by many to be the first mutual fund. And that makes a lot of sense, Steve, because if you recall from that episode, the first kind of modern stock exchange was back in Amsterdam, so it makes sense it was a Dutch merchant that also thought of the idea of a mutual fund. And I think what's quite interesting, Rob, is that the reason that the fund was essentially created was for small investors to pool their capital. And that really hasn't changed. You know, that's still one of the defining features of a mutual fund. Another defining feature of that first mutual fund was that there was a limited number of units. And once those units were bought initially, then they had to be traded amongst different individuals. There weren't more uh, units issued. Uh, and that's different than what we see from most mutual funds today. And we'll get into a little bit of that closed versus open structure of a mutual fund. But again, that first mutual fund would be considered a, a closed end fund in today's terms. 
Yes, yeah, so Steve, that was the closed-end structure, as you mentioned, but mutual funds today are more what we consider an open-end structure. So the first modern-day mutual fund in this open-end structure is in March 21st of 1924 with the Massachusetts Investor Trust. And this was the first one with that open-end structure, allowing for the continuous issue and redemption of shares by the investment company. And after just one year, it grew from about $50,000 in assets under management to about $392,000, which, of course, at that time, back in 1924, was a lot of growth. The fund eventually went public in 1928, and this is what became what we know today as the MFS Investment Management Company. So that's in America, Steve. And in Canada, it was about four years later, in about 1932, when the first Canadian open-ended fund, which was the Canadian Investment Fund Limited, or CIF, they were established, and by 1951, they had assets under administration of about $51 million. It subsequently changed its name to Spectrum United Canadian Investment Fund in November of 96, which then became the CI Canadian Investment Fund in August of 2002. So quite a long history for that one. Yeah, Rob, you mentioned the, the Canadian data there, and it's worth noting that we will focus a bit more on uh, Canada than, than anywhere else in this particular episode. Although the structures are, are very similar, some of the numbers, you know, in terms of size will obviously vary. So before we move into, you know, specific sort of anatomy-related uh, items as it pertains to mutual funds, just a couple more data points. Growth and popularity of mutual funds in Canada, in particular, really took place in the 1960s when we saw total assets invested in mutual funds go from $540 million in 1960 to more than $1 billion by the end of 1963. And the largest influx into mutual funds in Canada actually came during the 1990s, and many of our listeners may actually remember that time. I wasn't in the business uh, in the 90s, Rob, as you were, but I do remember that uh, time, period of time. And what we were seeing in the 90s was actually the double-digit interest rates that had lured you know, Canadian investors into GICs uh, through much of the 80s were starting to decline. So what we saw in May of 1990, the Bank of Canada rate, which is the rate that financial institutions base their interest rates, stood at one of the highest levels, which was 14.05%. From that point, the rate began to steadily decline, hitting 6.81% at the beginning of 1993 and 4.11% at the end of 1993. So a pretty substantial drop over a fairly short period of time. And as that rate fell, uh, we saw mutual fund sales surge jumping 140% from the end of 1992 to the end of 1993. So I think it's safe to say a lot of that guaranteed money was coming out of GICs and going into those mutual funds. I think that's a fairly safe assumption. Yeah, and throughout the decade, Steve, as you're alluding to, mutual funds clearly represented the fastest growing segment of the Canadian financial services industry. Throughout the 90s, basically from December of 1990, through to December of 2001, assets under management in mutual funds grew from $25 billion to $426 billion, a 1,700% increase. And these assets were managed in about 1,800 different mutual funds with more than 50 million different account holders. And I think, Rob, with a few exceptions, we've seen assets under management within the, the mutual fund industry continually grow since the 90s. There's been a few blips in there, and they generally correspond with a bear market. So tech bubble bursting, financial crisis, just as a couple of examples. 
And that, I mean, that could just be the fact that the investments within the funds declined. It may not have been that sales themselves declined. I think one thing that happens too, Steve, whenever we do go into a bit of a bear market or a pullback, investors can get gun shy. And so they decide to take their capital out of the markets and park it on the side until uh, the economy recovers and they have more confidence. And then you quickly soon afterwards see a rise in sales again as investors start to put their money back into the market. Okay, so Rob, the topic of this episode is the anatomy of a mutual fund. So let's start by talking about what a mutual fund is. So Rob, what is a mutual fund? Obviously, lots of different topics underneath the hood, shall we say. Uh, But start at the top, it's basically a type of an investment fund. It's a collection of assets such as stocks, bonds, uh, other investments. And as you alluded to earlier, it's a way for many investors to pool their capital to reduce the cost and also their risk. Yeah, Rob. And I think when we talk about cost and the fact that it's more cost effective for some investors, that's not necessarily the case for everybody. But it does allow that that investor with a smaller pool of capital access to types of investments that they wouldn't otherwise have. And I think that's really where when we're talking about cost, we're looking at it more from an availability standpoint than necessarily dollar for dollar cost. Not only cost, Steve, but also access to professional portfolio management that they may not otherwise be able to access without pooling their capital with others. So you get that professional portfolio management. You get streamlined and convenient administration. You get the risk management from a professional portfolio manager. And these portfolio managers, which we're going to get into them as well, they're actually going out there and meeting the companies and the CEOs and doing the financial analysis and traveling around the world to meet these different companies to determine where to invest around the world. Yeah, so we'll call that access to expertise, again, that you might not otherwise have. The one thing too, Steve, which is fantastic for the use of mutual funds is access to things that are harder to get just uh, by doing it yourself and going on to your iTrade account, for example, to do it yourself. So things like foreign investing, fixed income investing, where it's harder to get access to the actual product. You don't know which types of bonds to buy or where to even go buy them. So you need to rely on the professionals for that. And I think we should make it clear that we've talked a little bit about pooling capital You know, for individual investors that have smaller pools of capital themselves and are looking to merge that. Uh, I want to make it clear that that's not necessarily the the entire use for, for mutual funds. You know, we use mutual funds ourselves. And as you alluded to, Rob, a lot of times that's, that's you know, to get access to, you know, foreign markets, for example, or to uh, be able to get better prices on bonds that we can go and purchase ourselves because we don't have the same buying power. Right, we're not necessarily looking at investing fifty million dollars at a time to buy a bond issue, whereas within a, a fund they may be doing that. So they're able to get a better price because they're buying larger quantities of that particular issue. You know, you might also use them for you know different structures or sectors and so on. So we'll talk about that a little bit further down the road. But I thought it was important just to make it clear that we're not just talking about individuals who have smaller smaller pools of capital here. But that is, again, one of the, the benefits and also uh, part of how funds were created, essentially, how they came to be. And that's also one reason why the industry has ballooned so much over the past, call it two decades, is because there are so many different uses uh, for mutual funds in your investment strategy. Yeah, they really have evolved. So, Steve, however, like all other investments, mutual funds can have risks, which means your money could go up or down. 
depending on what's invested in, in the portfolio. So let's get into that. What types of things can you actually buy in a mutual fund? Yeah, Rob. So as much as money is pooled within a mutual fund, what you get is diversification of investments. So some funds will have different types of investments within them. Some will just be strictly equity. Some will be strictly fixed income. But to put it in a box, uh, the types of investments you can buy would be basically anything you're going to be buying outside of a mutual fund. So money market, fixed income, equities, I, I touched on the fact that it can be balanced, so some balance thereof. So it might be a 60% equity and a 40% fixed income portfolio. We see that quite a lot. It's often considered balanced. Global, so foreign equities or fixed income. Specialty, so we've seen, again, I talk about the evolution of funds. We're seeing more specialty funds. You know, something that might have an environmental focus would be a specialty fund. You can also have index mutual funds, so something that just owns an index. So you could just own the, the TSX 60, for example, and then a fund of funds. Those you know, are often referred to as portfolio funds. Essentially, you're pooling several mutual funds into a portfolio. Another one that doesn't get a lot of, of attention is, and again, this is, uh, I guess, a new evolution or a new iteration of fund of funds is these portfolios that are attached to a particular date. Those are the life cycle funds. So for example, uh, you can have a 2050 target, which means you're going to retire in about 30 years. It doesn't mean you need to retire in 2050. All that means is typically the average investor, while you're younger and still working, you have a, a larger, a longer time horizon and a larger risk tolerance. So you're gonna have more equities uh, in, in the portfolio and less fixed income. Each year, as you're getting closer to that target date, that 2050 year in this example, you're, in theory, getting more risk adverse, so you want less risk in the portfolio. So every year, your asset allocation is adjusting to be less equity, more fixed income, therefore uh, being more conservative when you're approaching your uh, soon-to-be retirement dates. Yeah, Rob, I think that strategy makes a lot of sense, and, and we often do that with clients ourselves, right? We'll adjust their asset allocation, whether it be in funds or otherwise. Um, now, another one that we don't see as much of anymore that's issued by the insurance companies is segregated funds. And again, we don't see a lot of segregated funds, and we're not going to get into a lot of details on, on segregated funds. But ultimately, what they are is a type of mutual fund that's issued by insurance companies that has certain guarantees built into it. So uh, if you have any specific questions about segregated funds, please give us a call and we are certainly happy to share some information with you on an individual basis. So Rob, you talked a little bit about risk. So why don't you touch on some of the types of risks associated with mutual funds? Really, the risks are the same as if you're buying uh, stocks or bonds or whatever the investment is directly themselves without doing it through a mutual fund. So for example, uh, when you're buying a foreign-based or a global mutual fund, you have country risk. So something happens politically uh, in a country which causes uh, some unrest in that particular region. You have credit risk when you're buying fixed income securities, and that's just a fancy way of saying, you know, will a company go bankrupt or not? Uh, can they lose their money? You have currency risk, especially when you have changes and fluctuation uh, from the Canadian dollar with what we're going to buy your mutual fund with versus where we're going to invest your money, whether you're buying U.S. stocks or stocks in Europe and China, etc. Again, back to bonds with interest rates. Will interest rates go up or down and how does that affect the value of the bonds in, the, in that portfolio? 
Liquidity is always a risk, and that's simply how quickly can you sell your assets, your your stocks, your bonds. And the great thing about a mutual fund, for the most part, there are some exceptions as always, is that uh, typically within a couple of days you have access to it. That is one of the benefits of mutual funds, but it can also be a risk in certain ones. But for the most part, you can access your capital quite quickly. And lastly, market risk. We always talk to investors about that risk of owning a single stock versus having it in a mutual fund. If, I, if we're recommending one particular company and they happen to go under or declare bankruptcy, you could lose all of your money. But if that same company has the same uh, event happen to them within a mutual fund, they may only be 2% of that portfolio. So as much as it has an impact, it's you know definitely outweighed by all the other investments. So you get to cover your risk uh, from uh, the market in that respect. So, Rob, just a bit of an interesting anecdote about risk and mutual funds in particular. You know, it was very early in my career, I'd probably say within the first couple of years being in the business, someone said to me that investing in mutual funds is less risky than buying individual equities. You know, just a real blanket statement. And I remember saying, well, that's not necessarily true. I said it's important to, first of all, distinguish what kind of mutual fund is it, and what does the individual equity portfolio look like? And I think a lot of people share that view that, you know, just by virtue of the diversification associated with mutual funds, they become less risky. And I really don't think it's that simple. And so I would encourage the listeners out there to really evaluate that based on what kind of fund you've got and what you're comparing it to on an individual equity basis. I think, again, Diversification, obviously, is a factor. Uh, the types of investments, I mean, if you've got a technology mutual fund versus a, a very well-balanced individual equity portfolio, you know, you've really got to weigh them and, and use proper measurements of risk to determine whether it's actually less risky or not, not just sort of take it at face value based on the diversification piece. And just to expand on that a little bit, Steve, you mentioned I started in the 90s. It was only about 10 days in the 90s, but still <laughs> about 10 trading days. But you, you, you said it earlier, we had the tech bubble bursting in early 2000. And at that time, uh, almost all mutual funds had a large exposure to Nortel. And of course, we all know what happened to Nortel. So it did go to zero eventually. But with so many mutual funds wanting to make sure that they looked like the index and they had to have exposure because it was doing so well. Even lots of mutual funds had really negative performance soon afterwards because of the exposure to that one company. So exactly to your point. Okay, Rob, so enough about risk. Let's talk about another feature associated with mutual funds that tends to get a lot of attention, and that's the cost. Now, I think that people are a bit more aware of the cost than they were maybe 10 or 15 years ago. One of the issues and why we've seen more regulation around funds is that ultimately the fee was embedded and you just didn't see it. You didn't see the cost. And I think a lot of people were really unaware of the costs associated with with funds. We use the acronym MER or Management Expense Ratio. And that MER includes the fee paid to the management company for managing the fund, and will also include some operating expenses, you know, legal and accounting fees, custodial fees, bookkeeping, and so on. So essentially, it's a collection of all of those fees that the fund is paying, and that is then passed on to the investor. And the way it's ultimately paid is it comes right off of your return every year, right? So it's not a, it's not a fee that you're, is going to come out of the cash balance of your account, 
it's going to come directly off the return. And again, that's why a lot of people weren't seeing it is when returns are reported, it's reported net of that fee. Yeah, you're exactly right, Steve. So that, that fee is still embedded. It's still there. It's just now that we report it so that you know what you're paying. It's just disclosed now. So it's as much as you don't see it, you know it's there. So MERs themselves are different you know, based on the funds themselves. Generally speaking, equity funds will have a higher MER. Specialty funds, global funds tend to have a, a higher MER as well. And fixed income funds tend to be a little bit lower. So Rob, maybe you can talk about the sales charge and the, the often referred to DSC or deferred sales charge. Right. So sales charge are basically the commissions that you have to pay when you buy or sell a fund. So the sales charges are basically the commissions that you may have to pay when you buy or sell a fund. If you pay this charge when you buy the fund, it's called an initial sales charge or sometimes a front end or FE. Or as you alluded to, Steve, there is the dreaded deferred sales charge or DSE, which is when you have to pay a fee on the back end. And interesting enough, the industry has really evolved over the past number of years. And really, there's not many deferred sales charge funds remaining. And they're even going to be outlawed starting next year in Ontario. That was just ruled on recently. And there's even many funds which are sold on a no-load basis, which means you pay no sales charge when you buy or when you sell. But even though there's no sales charge, there's still that internal management fee, which you spoke about earlier. Yeah, Rob, obviously when you're buying funds, you should be aware of any sales charges. The advisor that is advising you of these funds, if there is going to be a sales charge of any kind, whether it be front end or our deferred sales charge should be discussing that with you. But certainly ask the questions. You know, what is this going to cost me? What's the MER? I think those are fair questions to ask when you're looking at mutual funds. Yeah, and if you're uncertain, give us a call, and we're happy to go through your portfolio and let you know exactly what you're paying inside your mutual funds. So, Rob, I alluded to a closed-end fund versus an open-end fund earlier in the episode. Uh, Maybe you can touch a bit more on that. Yeah, so I'll start with closed end, Steve, because with that, there's basically a limited number of units when they initially raise the money for that fund. And they may and usually do trade on the stock exchange. So if you want to buy units of that fund, you're not going to buy it directly from the company. You're going to buy it from someone who is selling it on the market at whatever the market price is. Now, the difference to an open-ended fund or a regular mutual fund is you're buying units directly from the mutual fund company. And so you're going to be buying it directly at an acronym we call NAV or net asset value, which is essentially the value of all of the stocks in the portfolio less the operating expenses divided by the number of units. And that's how we get to the fund's net asset value. And on the flip side of that, when you're selling, you're essentially selling the units back to the fund company as well, which is at the net asset value of the fund. That's right, Rob. And generally with the open-ended funds, as the name suggests, the capital within that fund just continues to grow as Uh, investors put more money into that particular fund. You don't see them get capped a lot, but it does happen where they will cap out. But again, you don't see that happen very often. So I would say you can generally compare the two by saying closed-end funds tends to be more limited in terms of the size of the number of units as opposed to the open-ended funds, which have much higher ceilings for investment. So Rob, there isn't really much more to it than that, and we certainly don't want to overcomplicate the issues. Of course, if anyone has any specific questions to any particular funds, wants to talk more about closed-end funds uh, as an option, as, as we alluded to earlier, segregated funds, certainly happy to have those conversations. But why don't we just wrap up with a little bit more recent data 
And just to provide a bit of context in terms of what the, the mutual fund market looks like today. So by the end of 2020, Canada actually had 112 companies offering mutual funds. Yeah, so in total, there's about uh, 3,459 different funds. There's just under $1.8 trillion in assets under management currently in Canadian. Yeah, and Steve, as far as the top companies with assets under administration, as you would likely assume, all of the banks and their own uh, asset management divisions are all in the top 10, as well as some large independent companies. One other really interesting fact as well, Rob, is that the majority of Canadian mutual fund assets at the end of 2020 were in balanced funds. So 49% of the total were balanced funds. Equity funds were the second largest with 33% of, of assets. Now, what's interesting is when we actually compare that to ETFs, and I know we're not talking about ETFs, but when we look at ETFs, which is sort of, again, an emerging structure that looks a lot like mutual funds, we actually see 61% of ETFs are equity strategies and 31% are bonds. So you don't see, you see certainly more balanced funds on the mutual fund side as opposed to a similar structure in ETFs. And again, I think that accounts for a lot of the appeal. I think that accounts for the idea of mutual funds being lower risk is, again, generally, we see a lot of balanced funds. Right. That's a great point, Steve, and we'll get into ETFs or exchange-traded funds in a future episode. Yeah, I think the anatomy of an ETF would be a great topic going forward. Now, that brings up a good point, Rob, which is if you've got any topic ideas you want to send to us, by all means, uh, give us a shout, send us an email, give us a call, whatever works best for you. You can find past episodes or you can find our contact information on our website, ellisfinancialgroup.ca. If you haven't already, subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you get all the updated episodes. Most importantly, thanks very much for listening. We really do appreciate it. I agree. Thank you very much. We do greatly appreciate you taking the time to listen to our podcast. With that, as always, I am Stephen Ellis. And I am Robert Wolfson. And we are... A couple of gents. And we'll talk to you again soon.